Hello Watch Enthusiasts and welcome to Watch Chronicler. In today's episode I'd like to present the final episode about Watches and Wonders 2021, the watch show which has sort of incorporated SIHH and Baselworld into a single enormous watch show, in fact the largest to ever exist, albeit in digital form this year, and I'd like to address high horology. This is the very summit, the pinnacle of the rarefied world of luxury watches, and the area where you'll find the most imaginative watches and the most incredible designs both in terms of the aesthetics and the engineering going into watches. To put it simply, this is the area of watchmaking which makes us gasp in awe. It's a remarkable area and an arena for both large and small brands to compete against each other for the most impressive and most adventurous watches on the market. But before I delve into all these interesting and quite remarkable watches, do remember to like, share and subscribe if you're watching this on YouTube, and of course head over to watchchronicler.com to catch the bulk of Watch Chronicler content, including podcasts, reviews, and various other pieces. Do also remember that this episode is available as a podcast too, on all the usual platforms used for Watch Chronicler unscripted podcasts, because of the off-the-cuff and unprepared nature of these episodes, to give you the best opinion piece, let's say, about these new and quite exciting watches. And finally, remember to head over to Instagram to follow us and catch all the latest episodes. Now, an awful lot of interesting watches in this high horology bracket have been released, perhaps as a result of the fact that Watches and Wonders grew out of SIHH, the Geneva-based primarily high horology show, which used to take place in January, and later was intended to take place around the same time as Baselworld, but as a result of all the chaos over the last year or so, didn't really work out the way they were expecting it to. But of course, there have been so many releases of these high-level watches, but I'd first like to address a few which haven't made it in and give you my thoughts, just to draw attention to some of the most interesting pieces, which still perhaps deserve your attention. One which certainly deserves attention, but perhaps for the wrong reasons, is the new Audemars Piguet Black Panther Flying Tourbillon, which, quite honestly, is a watch where the less said about it, the better. It is, as has been seen by quite a large number of people at this point, a uh, really a very ugly watch. There's very little I can say about it, but it's certainly worth looking at, because it's a bizarre combination of classic Audemars Piguet design with a bizarre Marvel edition and an extremely high level of high horology. I encourage you to take a look, but it's certainly not something to look at with too much expectation of beauty. Then a watch which doesn't really fit into this style of video is the new Patek Philippe Calatrava with the Clou de Paris arrangement of detailing which we've seen on previous Calatravas but not more recently and it's really lovely to see this detail return. Then if you go to FP Journe there is the Octa limited series of 99 pieces which celebrates 20 years of this particular movement and it celebrates pieces from before the solid gold movement era of F.P. Journe, and so has a very unusual movement appearance, which I think is quite interesting, and something you simply won't see from the brand very often, because they don't make the standard silver-coloured plated movements which we're used to seeing across the rest of the industry. Now travelling to Germany, Lange have had quite an exciting few releases, but most of them are at least primarily rooted in models which have been previously launched, like for example a new release of the Lange Triple Split. Now on the assumption that Lange Datagraph is the finest chronograph movement ever made, then the Triple Split is a step above it. More simple in terms of additional features, but more complex in terms of movement function, this could be called the ultimate split second chronograph because not only does it split the seconds on the second hand, but on the minutes and the hours. Now, of course, that's not an awful lot of use, but it's a remarkable tour de force in terms of movement design and engineering, and it was originally released in 2018 in white gold, which is interesting because the original double split, the predecessor to this watch, was a platinum watch. And they've now released the triple split in a far more bold appearance, in pink gold with a blue dial, 
rather than the very subdued silver coloration of the previous version. Mechanically though, the watch does remain unchanged. A watch which has changed from the brand though is the new Langer 1 Perpetual Calendar Moon Phase, which is bizarrely the first Langer 1 with a perpetual calendar but without any additional features, which strikes me as quite an interesting addition to their range, but not one which I think adds enough to feature in this video, when there are some real corkers to speak about instead. The first watch to speak about is in a position where it's actually debatable as to whether it should even be in this video, because, because it's not a desperately complicated watch, but also one which lends perspective on another piece which is to be spoken about later on in the video. And the watch is the 90th anniversary model for the JLC Reverso. Now Gigi Le Coudre has had a serious job of celebrating the 90th anniversary of their most iconic model, the Reverso, and it's been re-released in a number of different variants, including a new green dial version, an ultra-complicated variant which will appear later on in the video, and most recently they've released the Reverso Tribute Nonantième, which is a 90th anniversary Reverso but with a new complication. But the strange thing is that it's an unusual watch because it tries to appear to have more complication than it actually has. Now this is one of the larger JLC Reversos on the market, at 49.4mm in length by 29.9mm wide in 18 karat rose gold. So it's a very bold piece and a large one. You see, this watch has been released in 190 pieces with a price of £33,400, which is a large amount of money, let's be quite honest, for a Reverso, but you could argue that this watch is a particularly interesting one, because whilst on the front of the watch there is a conventional dial with the usual two hands and small seconds, whereas if you turn the case around, you're presented with a rather beautiful jumping hour appearance, let's say, with the minutes rotating on a disc below. But that's not actually what you're seeing. You see, inside this watch is the Calibre 826, which is a new movement in terms of nomenclature within the JLC collection, but it's based on the underpinnings of the 850 series movements in the Reverso Duo face. That's to say the Reverso with a face on either side, in usually a light colour and a dark colour, to show the day and the night, with slightly different complications on each, depending upon which version you go for, but a general appearance of simply choosing between two dials based on aesthetic rather than functionality. But on this watch they remove that rear dial and instead fit discs to show the rotation of hours and minutes in a different way, a digital way let's say, or a semi-digital way. And the reason why they're semi-digital is because this movement doesn't actually have conventional jumping hours. So normally with a jumping hour watch the watch will click past to the next hour on the digital display just as it changes hour. However, this watch uses a double-sided conventional movement at base. So as a result, that disc which rotates doesn't click over once an hour, but instead rotates in a flowing manner. And whilst this is a nice way of being able to access a generally very elevated complication, the problem is that I suspect legibility is problematic if you can't actually tell which hour you're looking at through the small aperture or window. And I appreciate that JLC wants to produce something different and individual, but I think it's quite difficult to understand this watch's price positioning particularly when you consider the fact that for only about £6,000 more, you're able to get the Chopard LUC Quattro Spirit 25, an even smaller limited edition of a truly superlative level of watchmaking, which is, and it's very difficult to argue against this, immeasurably better in terms of engineering and design than this JLC, particularly when the normal duo face in the same case material is £18,500, so you're essentially doubling the price. And so this, I think, is one of the misses of the JLC launches in this high horology range. Luckily, though, they really have made up for this with their top-of-the-line model, let's say, this year, but more on that later, because now I'd like to go over to Vacheron Constantin for quite possibly the most beautiful watch of the year's releases. Vacheron Constantin has had a heck of an impressive display at Watches and Wonders 2021, 
with a range of new 1921 models which I've spoken about in previous episodes, but the model which has really turned heads is the Vacheron Santin Traditionnel Split Seconds Chronograph Ultra Thin Collection Excellence Platine. And this is a model which really is the pinnacle of Vacheron Santin. It's the pinnacle also of their watches which don't include, you could argue, superfluous complications like tourbillon, but instead it's actually quite a straightforward concept, a split-second automatic chronograph. But the execution is actually surprisingly modern. It has a very classical design, but not a vintage one in any way, with a very contemporary case shape, which is rounded, with a rather complex arrangement of facets and areas, and with exquisite finishing on this platinum case. Now this watch is within the Collection Excellence Platine, and so it's a collection of limited edition pieces within the platinum range of the brand, with some particular details like a platinum dial. And as such, this is a rather exciting watch where detailing is concerned, and the finishing is wonderful if you look even at the side of the pusher, where you can see a rather remarkable level of brushing, which you simply wouldn't expect to see on such a small detail of a watch produced from a material which is known for being difficult to work with. It's also quite a large watch at 42.5mm wide by 10.72mm thick, and there's a very good reason for these dimensions. This watch has the calibre 3500 within it, a movement only seen once before from Vacheron-Stantin, and was used in the Harmony Split Seconds Chronograph Ultra Thin back in 2015, a watch with exactly the same complication of a split-second chronograph with automatic winding. And that model was released in only 10 pieces, and unfortunately this watch isn't exactly much less rare. Only 15 are going to be made, for a price which I'll get to a little bit later. But for that price, you get an essentially unique watch design, but one which fits rather well within the overall brand collection. To fit within the Platine collection, it has a frosted or blasted platinum dial, and you can see that because it's signed at 4.30. You also have a surface texture which is somewhere between coarse and rather beautiful. Around the edge of the dial one can see a tachymeter, which is printed rather beautifully and has a very interesting and subtle graduation of filled-in blocks to show the individual markers at key numerals or numbers for the tachymeter to read. Something which that also demonstrates is the fact that the dial's spacing on this watch is perfect. Now the movement inside this watch is a large one, hence the case size, but they've used this to the watch's advantage by spacing the subdials perfectly within the dial, they've added the second track at just the right area of the dial in order to make everything balance, and overall it's a watch which looks extremely well resolved. Beyond this, the detailing is subtle, if exquisite. It's a watch which is clearly designed to take a leaf out of the book of the luxury chronographs of the 1940s and 50s, which did of course have a luxurious aesthetic, but were clearly designed to not allow functionality to be damaged by vanity. So the dial fixtures are simple, but beautiful. They're faceted, and presumably they're white gold. Usually they use white gold hands on these watches, along with white gold numerals or markers. And the only change to the marker at 12 o'clock is a slightly broader shape and a tapered form, which is only subtle, but gives just enough visual definition to offset the dial perfectly, and crucially offset the power reserve indicator placed at 6 o'clock. This sits just above an applied Vacheron Stantin logo, which seems very well placed on the dial. The hands follow a similar route of subtlety but beauty without any kind of vintage aesthetic. They have a lozenge in their centre and are bevelled along their centre too, which allows them to be frosted on one side and polished on the other. And these aren't old-fashioned style hands at all, but they do give a simple elegance which I think this watch deserves. But in reality, it's the movement of this watch which is going to draw the most attention, because it's one of the most beautiful movements ever made. I think there's very little argument there. The finishing is exquisite, with graining and various colorations throughout the movement, which allow it to seem extremely three-dimensional, in a way which only Langer movements tend to be able to pull off. 
there's also the most enormous amount of anglage and beveling around the movement, including points and small details which don't need to be included, but which have been included just for the viewing pleasure at the back of this watch. But whatever you say about this calibre 3500, it's a very rare movement. Only 25 of these movements are planned to be made, or have been made, which means it really is a new sight. Certainly it has a lot of the traditional aesthetics of a chronograph movement, specifically a manual movement you might expect to see. It has the usual lateral clutch arrangement, where you can see the transfer of energy through the movement. But I think it's also important to note the fact there is a lot of modern technology in this movement as well, despite keeping the appearance of an unbelievably well-finished and detailed 1950s movement. In its most basic form, this is a monopusher chronograph, so you start, stop and reset the chronograph with a single pusher, with a column wheel and lateral clutch to maintain classical appearance, but they wanted to add smoothness to this watch, which normally you would only find on a vertical clutch arrangement, which is a friction clutch rather than a locking clutch like you would see on a normal traditional chronograph with different gears which would slot together, and this tends to give a certain judder. And so to avoid this judder, which tends to be experienced when you start the chronograph, they've added a friction control element too, to a lateral clutch, something which you simply wouldn't normally see. And this is added in at the driving wheel, several gears before the clutch itself, it means there should be a level of slip, which allows the chronograph to engage smoothly and not have any kind of judder when you start it. Although I must say I'm surprised that there weren't any shock resistance problems as a result of this. In a more conventional way, if you look at the centre of the movement, you can see the rattrapante or split second assembly, which is controlled via a pusher in order to stop one second hand with the pincers you see in the centre of the movement, and then allow them to jump back with a sprung cam and ruby rollers, which engage when those claws release that wheel in the centre of the movement. Now this watch is a large watch as I've said, and there's a very good reason. You see this movement is 37.66mm wide, because around a fairly conventionally sized manual chronograph movement is a peripheral automatic winding mass. In this case it's 22 karat gold on a rail around the edge of the movement, and this sacrifices ultimate efficiency for the avoidance of the risk of the central bearing of a normal rotor failing and damaging the surface of the movement when the rotor is allowed to bounce around, as well as giving you a phenomenal view of the movement itself. And there's very little doubt in my mind that this piece can be viewed as a masterpiece, but quite honestly for around £300,000 and released in only 15 pieces, it really ought to be. Speaking of masterpieces, we now have to look at the Bulgari Octofinissimo Perpetual Calendar, the new thinnest perpetual calendar ever made, and also the thinnest automatic perpetual calendar by extension. Now over the last few years, Bulgari have been slowly releasing a range of six of the absolute thinnest watches within their categories, and this has taken place over the last seven years or so, and has sufficiently frightened the industry to the point where Piaget have gone quite mad with the production of their 2mm thick Altiplano, which is a remarkable piece of engineering, but you could argue would never have existed without the threat of Bulgari's ultra-thin and seemingly endless range of complications in an ultra-thin configuration. The other first this watch carries is that it's the first fully platinum Octofinissimo, and where sizing is concerned, this is a 40mm watch, which is only 5.8mm thick, with a 30m water resistance. And to put this into perspective, the whole of this watch is the same thickness as the new Patekfili Perpetual Calendar movement on its own, without any watch, dial, hands, anything else around it. That's the level of mastery we can witness in this timepiece. Now fundamentally, this watch has exactly the same design as previous Octofinissimo watches, so I won't dwell on the looks of this watch too much, because we all know the particular shape this watch takes. And the dial remains a flat, matte grey on the titanium version, which allows it to fit in with the simple and somewhat minimalistic appearance of this collection, 
a collection which you could say is at odds with the rather ostentatious history of Bulgari. And in the pursuit of ultimate thinness, the dial display has been changed from having date windows or any kind of window at all on the dial to show information, and these are entirely replaced by retrograde hands on the dial showing the various elements which you would expect to see on the perpetual calendar. That's to say the date, the week, the month, and of course an indication of whether it's a leap year or not. But for the more classically inclined, there is a platinum version which is somewhat more expensive, but does demonstrate a very impressive level of finishing for a platinum timepiece, which let's not forget is a material which is difficult to work with and usually a pain to brush. And in this case they've produced an almost entirely brushed platinum watch with a blue sunburst dial which is lacquered to give a richer colour. The only part of this particular model which isn't platinum is the crown which is white gold, I would expect because of machining. But whether you go for the 57,000 Swiss franc titanium version or the 86,000 Swiss franc platinum version, you'll receive the same BVL305 movement an automatic 2.75mm thick movement, that's to say thinner than most ultra-thin automatic calibers, with micro-rotor automatic winding and a perpetual calendar, in addition to quite a long 60-hour power reserve and a 3Hz beat rate and 30 joules. To an extent you can see how this movement has become so thin by looking at the width which is 36.6mm, 11mm wider than ETA2824 for example, thus showing how the components have been spaced out. You see all the perpetual calendar works, are placed on a single plane on the front of the movement, whilst the use of a micro-rotor means that the automatic winding system doesn't add a level to the movement, but slots in alongside other functions. Altogether, it's an incredibly impressive watch, there really are no two ways about it, but what you do have to bear in mind is that sometimes it's easy to forget just how impressive these watches are, just because, with a very similar appearance to other ultra-thin Bulgaris over the last few years, you sort of take this watch for granted, and it's very easy to do so but ultimately a 2.75mm thick perpetual calendar is something really to celebrate. For Patek Philippe there have really been two impressive high horology releases this year, and the first to speak about is the annual calendar reference 4947-1A. And this actually isn't a new watch, but it's a revision of a watch which most men probably won't know about. To backtrack a little bit, in 2019 Patek tried to draw attention away from the steel Nautilus to other watches in their range with the Calatrava Weekly Calendar 5212A, which was a steel Calatrava with, as the name suggests, a weekly calendar. And this was a hodgepodge of different designs and different details in different colours, and wasn't desperately popular. But this year they're trying the task again, not necessarily with a brand new watch, but with a blue dial. And this isn't the first steel annual calendar from the brand, but it is the first of these mainstream watches available to, let's say, a male or unisex public rather than expressly a female public with this particular design. You see, this watch is essentially a unisex version of the 4947G, the women's annual calendar within the Petit Philippe range, with a diamond bezel and diamond crown. The result is a watch with actually perhaps perfect sizing at 38mm wide by 11mm thick. And in many ways it makes sense to have a standard production steel annual calendar in the collection, given the fact that this is a complication which was created by Petek in the 1990s as a simplification of the complicated and difficult to use perpetual calendars which had existed throughout the 20th century in wristwatch form. So what's actually new here? Well the case remains exactly the same with those curved forms and dished sides. It also has the same general dial arrangement and even the same perhaps overly curvy numerals around the dial which are Arabic numerals in this case. And I must say this watch does still have a very feminine feel, or rather a feel which is reminiscent of Petit Philippe's feminine endeavours. 
It has those overly detailed Arabic numerals and a general dial arrangement, which does seem a little bit unusual for a men's watch, because let's be honest, this watch is primarily going to be bought by men. But then this watch has also kept the linen style of dial texture and the same dial arrangement, of course. The only real change is the fact that it's steel, it has a blue colour of dial and doesn't have any diamonds on it. Inside it uses the predictable 324SQALU, a well-known movement based on the bread and butter 324 base, which is exactly what Patek Philippe use as their most basic automatic movement, but in this case it's been modified to take that annual calendar on top. As such, it has very similar features to the 324, with a 45-hour power reserve, it runs at 4 hertz and has 34 joules, but of course adds the annual calendar and the moon phase. And for £36,890, I don't think it's at all a bad price, and a fairly reasonable watch compared to what you can get from other brands for that sort of expense. In a lot of ways, though, the annual calendar is just a warm-up for the second blue-dialed Patek Philippe this year, the 5236P-001 inline perpetual calendar, which is another level of watchmaking, and is a unique and new design, unlike that annual calendar. Now, it's not all that often that Patek Philippe launches an altogether new complication, and interestingly, they haven't really launched a new complication in the case of this watch, because back in 1975, a pocket watch was produced by Patek Philippe which included a perpetual calendar with a fully digital display. That watch, however, had an American sort of style of date, with the month, the date, and then the day. Instead, this new watch presents a variation on this, with a few changes to fit into a wristwatch format. But to be quite honest, that's actually just the tip of the iceberg. The amount of development which this watch has clearly needed is staggering. But first of all, let's look at the physical appearance of this watch. This piece is a large watch at 41.3mm wide by 11.07mm thick, and the reason for this is down to the movement, it has to be said, but the general shape and aesthetic is very similar to the 3448, the first serially produced automatic perpetual calendar. It has the short, pointed lugs, the very strong, rounded aesthetics of the case, and a very simplistic aesthetic as well. This watch is platinum and entirely polished rather than having brushed sides, and you could say that this is a bit of a disappointment, actually, because the case is very similar to this slightly smaller reference 5235, from which the basic movement of this watch is actually derived, which has the regulator-style annual calendar, which we've come to see from Patek Philippe over the last few years. And importantly, that watch does have brushed detailing on the sides of the case, where no such thing has been added for this watch, although I assume that's down to the fact that this watch is platinum and not gold. Still, Given the flack which the reference 5320G perpetual calendar back in 2017, one of my favourites by the way, received when it was first released for having an overly simple pressed case, I think that I would expect more from the brand producing such remarkable watch as the one which you see before you. Moving to the dial, you have a very deep, rich blue with a vertical brushed detail across the dial and a general aesthetic which is quite simple and quite sparing, you could say, because all of those perpetual calendar details which you would normally expect are seen across that single band just below the Patek Philippe logo. And I suppose you could say the beauty of this is that it actually simplifies the dial quite considerably by comparison to a normal arrangement, and so you can really enjoy the light-catching nature of that brushed dial. At the bottom of the dial, of course, you do see the oversized small seconds with a moon phase indicator in the centre, and on either side you also have little windows, the one on the left showing you the day or the night, and on the right you can see the leap year indicator. The hands and the indices are rather lovely, if rather simple, and the hands in particular take a very dignified, very modern route, and are straight, as you can see, with a sort of sword bevel going from the centre to the outside, 
and running all the length of the hand, including the centre of the hand, something surprisingly rare but also something rather lovely to see, in conjunction with quite a large dial and rather long hands. We should also give a little bit of time to that indicator beneath the Petit Philippe logo, with Saturday the 18th of March, as shown in the example on the screen. Now there's no detailing around this window, it simply shows these four rotating discs which appear beneath the dial, and are arranged differently to the ones on the pocket watch upon which this watch was based, because in order to have a lighter, smaller arrangement, and also to allow the discs to sit on the same level, to give less depth to the dial, they had to be smaller and therefore had to have this new arrangement. Another key consideration was allowing the discs to be individually large enough to still be legible, because as you can imagine, having a date wheel which has to accommodate all 31 days on a single ring is going to be very difficult to fit under the dial at that particular position without messing with the case size. But the root of all of these impressive features is the calibre 31260 PSQL. Now this movement is a fundamentally new answer to the Petit Philippe automatic perpetual calendar, because it isn't actually based on any existing perpetual calendar in their range. You see, at the moment, the Petit Philippe range includes essentially two solutions to the automatic perpetual calendar. There's the 324-based set of movements, such as the 324SQ, which are 4 Hz full-size rotor automatic movements, which are based on the standard central automatic rotor movements you see in, for example, the Petit Philippe Nautilus, then there are the 240 range of movements, including the 240Q, and these are based on the brand's famous 240 micro-rotor movement. An important detail to note here as well is that these are considerably less complex movements than 324-based automatics, as a result of having about 275 parts instead of about 365 in the case of those full-rotor automatic movements. But instead of using either of these movements as a base, this watch takes the movement out of the reference 5235-50, the regulator dial annual calendar I spoke about earlier, and that uses the calibre 31260 REGQA, a movement which was never really designed to have a perpetual calendar on it, but instead was designed to be an annual calendar. But there were very good reasons for choosing this movement, notably it's a larger movement to accommodate the additional features this watch was going to need, as well as having superior specifications in general, in terms of having a slightly higher beat rate than the 240, but still having a micro-rotor rather than a full-size rotor on the movement. Still, this was really only the beginning, because a lot of changes have been made to the movement. Most notably, it now has a platinum rotor weight instead of gold, which is more dense and therefore more efficient, in terms of winding a movement which, due to the instant change of the date, is going to require a lot of energy to run. It also has a beat rate increased from 3.2 Hz, a very weird 23,040 vibrations per hour, which I haven't seen anywhere else, increased to 4 Hz, or 28,800 vibrations per hour, for smooth seconds. The watch also has a mainspring disengagement system to avoid undue wear throughout the system, beyond the normal automatic spring you'll have in most automatic watches, where the spring disengages from the end of the barrel, and just rotates around the inside of the barrel freely when fully wound. In this case, you actually have a more elegant and more complex solution to the same problem, and I wonder if this is related to the use of a platinum rotor weight, and therefore more strain on the system. Aesthetically, it's a redesigned movement, with more numerous and more complex bridges, with more anglage and a rearrangement of the movement, presumably to fit the perpetual calendar as a new function. And speaking of that perpetual calendar, this increases the part count of the watch, from 313 to a staggering 503, which is, by the way, the most parts in any simple perpetual calendar from Patek Philippe at the moment. Inside the perpetual calendar assembly, you have a few things you would expect, and some which you wouldn't necessarily expect. The things you would expect, for example, are a cam system to control the month and year lengths, which is a very standard concept, 
But then there are some more complex solutions, like the one chosen to avoid both of the date disks from moving on the transition from the 31st to the 1st of the month. And this uses a 31-pointed star which misses two teeth to allow just one of those wheels to rotate for that particular date change. Altogether, it's a stunning piece of engineering. It's a remarkable watch, and certainly one which I'm sure will be a favourite amongst collectors. I'm not sure it's the most handsome of watches, that's for certain, but in terms of what's been done with the movement, and also the story behind how the movement has evolved, I think it's a fascinating one. And the price for this watch is £100,190. For the final watch in this video, it's time to return to JLC with their Reverso Hybris Mechanica Calibre 185 Quadriptico Quadriptic, and that really is a word which explains the watch. It's a four-dialed watch. Now, in my opinion, the rest of the Reversos released for the 90th anniversary of this iconic watch have been hit and miss, but with this watch we really do see a level of innovation at a level of price which, quite honestly, is difficult to comprehend, given that this is a million-plus franc watch. Aesthetically, this is a timepiece which resembles the Reverso format very clearly. It has the Reverso blued hands, the rotating case, the lower, flatter crown which has been seen on more recent and more expensive Reverso models. You also have the iconic strakes across the case, although in this particular example they're cut by the dial, which isn't quite the rectangle you expect it to be. And then of course you have the rotating case, which remains in this particular timepiece, with an appearance like none other, because this watch has four dials. This is also a very large Reverso. It is a white gold piece which is 51.2mm long by 31mm wide and 15.15mm thick, although you could argue that's not actually desperately bad, given the complication this watch has, and the fact that that's the thickness of your average Velger 7750 movement watch. But this is the kind of watch where it's important to simply give the headlines, and here they are. This is a watch with 11 complications, 12 new patents, and six years of development behind the watch, which is, rather amusingly, the same length of time as I've worked in the watch industry. And quite apart from the gear pattern you see on the dial, and the various frontal elements of the movement on whichever dial you happen to be looking at, the real star here is the movement, and this is the calibre 185. The 185 is a 50-hour manual wind movement, with functions split between the rotating central case of the watch and the case back, which is itself part of the movement too. And I think the best way of taking you through this movement is by looking at each of the faces of this watch, through which you can actually see different elements of the movement working because of the skeletonized format. The front of the watch features the time, as you can see from the two hands, the tourbillon of course placed at that 8 o'clock position, and which has the seconds placed on it because it's a one minute tourbillon. Then you have a day-night indicator, and of course the display of the instantaneous perpetual calendar. Around the back, things start to become more interesting, because you have the time displayed with a digital jump hour, as you can see from that blue time, and then around that you have a ring showing the minutes, with a red marker which rotates around its orbit in order to show you the minutes. Perhaps more importantly, you also get to see all of the background of how the minute repeater of this watch functions. For instance, next to that small dial, you can see the governor for the minute repeater, which is essentially a spinning unit, which has masses and springs, and essentially extends itself or retracts itself in relation to its rotation in order to maintain a constant release of energy. And this means that you get a silent escapement, because you need an escapement to control the release of energy for the minute repeater, but you also need it to be silent, and this is the answer to that very problem. Now we move to the case back, which is of course part of the movement too. And this component is more simple on the very back of the watch, which simply shows the moon phase in the southern hemisphere. 
And it should be noted that this back of the watch is devoted specifically to the moon and its motion. The inner case back is somewhat more complex and shows you not only the moon phase for the northern hemisphere, but also the draconic lunar cycle, which is the height of the moon, and perhaps most interestingly, the anomalistic lunar cycle, which is a longer period, which displays the perigree and apogee of the moon's orbit. And so you have a very complex range of displays on this watch, most of which I'm sure will never come in handy, beyond simply being wonderful to observe and to look at when you have a spare moment to admire the timepiece and the sheer technology going into this watch. And of course, for a million francs, it's not designed to be anything beyond amazing. It's purely a novelty, an incredible, beautiful, exquisitely made novelty produced in 10 pieces, and no doubt due to become a serious collector's piece in coming years. But I'll conclude the video there. What do you think of these various releases in this ultra-high-end range of high horology watches? If you enjoyed this video, please remember to like, share and subscribe, and of course follow us on whichever podcast player you enjoy using, if you prefer not to watch this as a video. But thank you very much for watching. This is Armon from watchchronicle.com, out.